Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. As many Ontarians return to the workplace, enjoy public gatherings like weddings and concerts, and prepare to send their kids back inside the classroom, the Ontario Medical Association is warning of difficult days ahead when it comes to COVID-19. Earlier this week, the OMA assembled a group of powerful healthcare professionals to discuss possible new variants, the continued need for vaccinations, the potential for an increase in COVID cases, and the likelihood of a very bad flu season. Here with rock-solid advice on how to prepare for what could be a challenging fall is Dr. Rose Zacharias, president of the Ontario Medical Association. Welcome to the feed, Dr. Zacharias. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. So why did you want to hold a media briefing earlier this week with the topic living with COVID-19? Let's talk about the timing and the title. So Ontarians will soon return to school, to workplace, hybrid models and very many workplace, also preparing for public gatherings, possibly in greater numbers. And yet we are still in the seventh wave of the COVID pandemic. The healthcare system is bursting at the seams. We are very aware of this with the stressors inside emergency departments and uh, lack of access to primary care. And and yet uh, here comes the fall. We're potentially facing a potentially bad flu season um, this fall. And so we need to be prepared. You had three very different but equally uh, uh, prominent and powerful physicians join you for this uh, media briefing. Why did you choose each of them? Yes, so we had Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak join us uh, from the emergency department uh, point of view. He's a hardworking um, emergency department physician at St. Michael's Hospital, as well as Dr. Sloan Freeman, a pediatrician at St. Mike's Hospital, and Dr. Zane Chagla with his infectious disease expertise uh, joined us on the panel this morning. And really just to hear from each of their perspectives, of course, about the strains in the emergency department and how best to be equipped with a a potential rise in visits to the emergency department. Can you believe it? We are under such intense strain there. And then also protecting our very vulnerable population, our children, and and the fact that they are behind in um, their their uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. Some of them have fell behind in their uh, routine back-to-school immunizations. And so how can we best protect them going forward? And then just to get that overall picture as to, you know, where are we at? Um, at this stage in the pandemic, and uh, and Dr. Chagla was able to provide that sort of infectious disease overview um, in order to be prepared for where we're at with COVID, but also in uh, coming flu season, as we know, uh, comes every fall. So where are we then in the, the overall landscape of COVID-19? Where are we right now? So we really are a place in healthcare system overwhelm. Um, we have been dealing with a crisis of covid over the last two and a half years inside of a healthcare system that actually had pre-existing gaps. And so our current state is that we are backlogged with many, many surgeries and procedures that patients have been waiting for. We've measured over 22 million patient care services, such as hip surgeries, knee surgeries, cancer screenings, mammograms and colonoscopies, people waiting to be seen. The wait times have been long prior to the pandemic, but they're especially long now. And uh, also we are um, 
Primary care is a foundation of our healthcare system, and one million people in Ontario don't have a family doctor. That always strains the healthcare system. But now, with patients showing up sicker in emergency departments, dealing with chronic illnesses like heart disease and diabetes, which doctors know how to manage, people don't have access to those family doctors. Also, the, the mental health overlay. We refer to a mental health tsunami. Ontarians paid such a high price during COVID dealing with the lockdowns and the social isolation, the job loss, the parenting strain. I'm a mom. I had my kids home during COVID. It was extremely stressful for them to show up online and do their schooling and to be working at the same time. And so we are dealing with mental health issues more than we have ever before. And so all of these things come together really in a perfect storm in a strained healthcare system. And it's making things quite difficult for the healthcare team providers who want to provide care. And then you add to that, that great big piece of the healthcare puzzle, and that is COVID-19. It, it has not gone away. It is not behind us. We are not out of this pandemic yet. We are not out of this pandemic yet. We have been tracing and tracking um, um, the, the virus and have been measuring it in wastewater. We know that um, Dr. Chagla brought us some of that expertise in our panel um, earlier today and it, uh, you know, he outlines how to be uh, better prepared if indeed there is a surge as we come indoors, right? Viruses spread more readily indoors. Currently, there's not a mask mandate. It's still recommended when you're inside of a closed space where there's vulnerable people, maybe elderly or really young ones that haven't been immunized yet to still wear a mask, to be monitoring for symptoms. We're not testing as much for COVID um, right now, uh, certainly not asymptomatically, but those with symptoms need to be monitoring. And then we are, we've had a great vaccination rate up over 90% in Ontario, but uh, especially young people are a bit behind in their um, COVID-19 booster shots. And so we need to still um, continue to get vaccinated, also to get our flu shot heading into the fall and uh, to be as best prepared as possible um, for the weather getting colder and uh, and the visits to healthcare providers usually going up in the fall. Can we zero in on our young people, our students? So when they go back to school in Ontario, mask, uh, masking is not mandated at this point. Uh, you mentioned that their immunization uh, needs to be brought up to speed, and that includes uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. It, it, you know, it's got to be a, a bit of a concern for parents and caregivers as they think about sending their kids back to school with a fall that looks like it's going to be ferocious. So indeed, um, our message is loud and clear. It's for everyone to get caught up on their COVID uh, vaccine series, uh, especially for young people. They are a bit behind uh, from the general population. And so um, to access that, uh, that, that, that vaccine, whether it's through your family doctor or nurse practitioner or public health care clinic, uh, some pharmacists offering, um, uh, offering the, the COVID shots, um, and then to to do really those common sense things. You know, we always as parents monitor our children for symptoms. If they are feeling unwell, then to test them and then to follow the public health guidelines when you have a household member that's tested positive for COVID and um, to be washing our hands regularly, um, to be um, practicing those good uh, public health care hygiene principles um, and to really be 
looking out uh, for each other and uh, and staying safe as we as we possibly can um, in order to make the return to school um, as 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 good as possible. We want our children in school. We want them back with their teachers and their their peers. And uh, and so this is a way we can support the back to school plan. My head spins when I think about all of the infectious diseases that are out there floating. And most recent, we're hearing about the uh, resurgence of polio. We've got monkeypox. We've got COVID nineteen. You, you, the OMA, the the general healthcare practitioners uh, allied, are predicting a difficult flu season coming up. That's a lot to absorb for the average individual like myself. Yes, yes. And so vaccines are our number one preventative strategy. That's, that, that message has been clear from public health and, um, and we amplify that message. We know that Ontarians have a high rate of vaccination, which is extremely protective. However, one in four Canadian children are behind in their routine childhood vaccinations. That's also a patient care procedure that was backlogged, kind of put on the shelf while we were dealing with the crisis of COVID. And so if these routine childhood vaccinations are not caught up, if they're not addressed, we could see the return of previously eradicated diseases. You mentioned measles, mumps, rubella, even hepatitis A and B and polio. Um, Right now, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control is investigating a possible polio outbreak in New York City. And this is a vaccine-preventable disease. We are a publicly funded healthcare system with an emphasis on prevention. And so we want to provide these preventative tools in order to return to school healthy, to keep our kids healthy. And uh, and so this is what really the message that we're amplifying in order to make the back to school return to work even plan as safe as possible. Dr. Zacharias, why could we be facing a potentially really bad flu season? It would be the first time in in three years. I think what concerns me most is experiencing a flu season with the state of our healthcare system. Our emergency departments are overrun. A million people in Ontario don't have a family doctor. And so we are also dealing with the mental health issues because of the strain and the stress of, of, the, of the pandemic. We know prior to the pandemic, one in five Canadians said they were struggling with anxiety, depression. Uh, the Mental Health Commission of Canada did a survey uh, and 84% of respondents said the pandemic made their mental health worse. And so because emergency departments are open 24-7, it often is the default place to go. And yet beds are blocked. People who should be in long-term care homes or being cared for in the community are occupying hospital beds. And it puts such a strain on the healthcare department when people who are admitted or are seeking mental health care are in the emergency department waiting to be seen. So we have a lot of stressors in the system right now to deal with something new and extra, such as flu season, is going to stress us even further. You know, it's interesting. uh, The uh, Ontario Chief Medical Officer of Health many months ago used the phrase living with COVID-19, and there was a big backlash to that. A lot of people thought, well, I don't want to be resigned to that, but we're beginning to understand what that means. What does living with COVID-19 mean to you? I think living with COVID-19 means that we listen to our public health care experts. Vaccines have been offered. They are available. We need to check our own individual vaccination status and catch up on our vaccines. We need to um, also do the common sense things about monitoring our symptoms, 
not spread a virus at work or at school if you're feeling symptomatic and test positive for COVID. And and also to access our, our primary care health provider. And I mean, I say that with, um, you know, a bit of stress because um, and, and apprehension. I, I speak that because we know right now a million people in Ontario don't have a family doctor. Uh, the, the problem with that there, and we do welcome government announcements about increasing medical school spots and junior trainee spots, even reducing the barriers for internationally trained physicians to enter the healthcare system. But we have a problem in our healthcare system, and I have seen it evolve over time. I've been a doctor for 20 years, working in the emergency department, and we are seeing the administrative burden on physicians increase to the point where it is compromising their ability to provide direct patient care. It's the number one thing that we need to address, decreasing the administrative burden on physicians in order to free them up and let doctors be doctors inside the system uh, and provide the care that they want to provide. May I now take the patient's perspective? And and I had COVID-19 in February I, listening to everything you're saying and reading the headlines and hearing from other experts uh, in Ontario, I've become fearful of the fall. Should I fear the fall? I think uh, I want to ask you if you're vaccinated. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm, I've had three shots already. I haven't had a fourth yet. Fantastic. So a fourth is available to you. That is something for you to now um, go ahead and get in order to be prepared. Um, and then also to continue to lean into the public health advice. I don't think fear should be the prominent demo- uh, emotion. I think preparation mm-hmm. and anticipation uh, can be where we are right now. We have high capacity public health care experts who are advising us. We have health caregivers in the system who know how to care for patients and our families and our vulnerable um, neighbors um, and ourselves. And so we can lean into that expertise. Indeed, uh, Ontario's doctors are looking to work with government to address some of the system issues that hamper uh, the patient care that we are delivering. Um, But I am optimistic, even inside this strenuous crisis, there is an opportunity to implement the recommendations that we know will affect positive change. And so uh, you can know that you're inside of a system of people who are working hard to address the changes and improve uh, the state of our healthcare system for your family and for yourself. So instead of succumbing to fear, I promise you that I will now look at it as a time to prepare. Mm-hmm. A time to prepare. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for your words, for your advice, your, your thoughts. Dr. Rose Zacharias, President of the Ontario Medical Association, really appreciate you joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Could the polio virus be making a comeback in Canada? Kevin Frankish with a warning from our former Lieutenant Governor David Onley. It was a disease we thought we had eradicated. In fact, the world was proud of itself, and for every right it should be, because we worked together to get rid of polio. But earlier this month, polio virus was discovered in wastewater in counties outside of New York City, signaling the first domestic outbreak since the 70s of this potentially deadly and crippling virus. Ontario's former lieutenant governor and uh, a friend of mine, David Onley, 
lived with polio as a child, still lives with the results of polio, and joins me right now to talk about this. Hi, David. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I am good. Do you still live with polio? Do you still have polio, by the way? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's a lifelong uh, impact, and that's, of course, why it's so crucial that people be vaccinated, and that's why in the past uh, number of decades, as you alluded to, um, there was a major effort to eradicate polio. It was begun by the World Health Organization and continued uh, with the um, with a number of organizations, not the least of which was Rotary, uh, which has, of course, a number of chapters all around the world. And uh, when they began this eradication program uh, under the name of End Polio Now, um, they distributed vaccines and administered vaccines literally around the world beginning in 1987. And when that began, there was a, just under a 1,000 cases of polio per day worldwide. Wow. Um, because of this campaign that continued on up until recent years, it was finally reduced down to 47 cases per, uh, per year in 2016, I should say, and last year it was reduced down to just 16 cases of polio worldwide. So to be reduced from 1,000 cases per day down to 16 per year worldwide, uh, you know, made everyone believe, okay, we're all right, this thing has been completely lit. But uh, as you know, as long as there's one case, there's the possibility there's going mm -hmm. to be more. And this, of course, is why this uh, outbreak in New York, um, just outside of New York City, is so crucial to be understood as the potential to uh, bring more. And so uh, there we are for today, and that's why uh, medical officials uh, and politicians and health officials are so concerned about stopping this before it goes any further. And I didn't mean to sound naive in my question if you still have polio, because I know no. so very little about it, because by the time I started getting older, it really wasn't that big a deal anymore because we had done such a good idea. I don't know much about it. So polio impacts the spinal column, impacts the nervous system, and yep. you got it when you were a little boy. Yes, just uh, three years of age, three years and a bit. And uh, fortunately... Um, there was aggressive therapy that was undertaken by a doctor, Dr. McCray at St. Michael's Hospital, and he copied the Nurse Kenny treatment uh, out of Australia. And that was counterintuitive to the prevailing uh, treatments of the day, which was aggressive physiotherapy, which hurt, hurt like the dickens, but it forced the brain to reconnect with some of the nerve pathways which activated certain muscles and so notwithstanding the fact that i used long leg braces and used a scooter when we both worked at city tv yeah. um, and i'm now using a power wheelchair um, i've been able to live my life very uh, confidently and, and very actively uh, essentially for the last 70 years uh, do the math, that's a winning proposition. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing, too, is that people who are living with polio quite often will not be as high profile as you because they, they can get self-conscious. And, and, yep. and you chose 
Uh, and thank goodness for us, so, you know, whether it was people watching on television and reading your books or or watching yeah. you in your position as lieutenant governor, you chose to be in our faces and chose to say, listen, this isn't, this doesn't define me and I'm not going to let it keep me down. Yeah, it's very true. And I think uh, those uh, with other diseases who do the same thing are to be applauded as well. Uh, I mean, one either curls up in a ball and just, mm-hmm. just disappears or one fights their way through it, and that's what I chose to do, certainly with the support of my parents, who always told me, look at Franklin Roosevelt. He was president of the United States. He had polio. He was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he fought the way through World War II. And so as a little kid, I thought, all right, I'm going to be president of the United <laughs> States someday. And, and then I was really, when I was about seven or eight, I was really disappointed to find out <laughs> that you had to be an American citizen before you could be president of the United States. <laughs> okay. you know, he, continue, he continues to be a role model, along with another number of other people. Joni Mitchell is one in mm-hmm. particular, uh, where the disease has not impacted her in the same way it has me. Um, Itzhak Perlman, uh, the great musician, you know, similarly, but... Um, one either decides to press on or, or pack it in. And uh, I think in my instance, with the encouragement of my parents and the uh, hefty physiotherapy with Dr. McRae, um, I was able to recover to the extent that I was able to lead and have been able to lead a, a relatively normal lifestyle. Okay, so here we are. 2022, we've got the polio virus being detected in wastewater outside of one of the largest cities in North America. Are you angry? Because I'm going to tell you, I am. I'm angry because presumably this is the result of people paying attention to very misinformed people telling people not to bother with a polio vaccine. Are you angry, David? No, I wouldn't say I'm angry, but I would say disappointed in the sense that um, I remember growing up, and I'm sure you do too, Kevin, when you would have, you go to the doctor's, you'd have your mother or father would have that little yellow card, Mm -hmm. and that would have the date and the checkoffs of all which, your vaccines, uh, which vaccines you mm-hmm. have taken. And, and I just presume that, well, polio vaccine is in the mix of that, but it wasn't beyond a certain point. And I also remember at the age of 12, which was some uh, nine or 10 years, I was probably a little bit further along than that, but in my teens, where my family doctor said, you know, you haven't had a polio shot in the longest time. I think we better give you one. And I remember just being totally shocked to hear that. And he just explained to me that people were not paying attention. And um, that he decided that given my situation, um, that it would have been a horribly cruel irony if I somehow, you know, beat the odds in the first instance and beat further odds by getting physiotherapy only to be felled, you know, in my teens with a, you know, a potentially uh, crippling, uh, well, definitely crippling, but a potentially fatal blow of uh, polio. So my bottom line really is to people, if you don't know whether your children have been vaccinated or how many years has it been since you've been vaccinated, mm-hmm. then get to your family doctor and uh, ask whether or not your charts show that you've had an up-to-date shot and then go for it. I think what makes me angry, David, is is that... I'm drawing a parallel here to how the world handled COVID. If we had worked together, we could have eradicated COVID. I am not, you know, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. 
we could have eradicated COVID in two months had we worked together. And and that's what happened years ago with polio. The world banded together. What what was the name of the, you said it was End Polio Now, I think was the name of the campaign? Well, it was End Polio Now, and it was a combination of the Rotary International as well as the World Health Organization and a number of other medical organizations to boot. And, and literally hundreds of millions of children and people around the world were eradicated, were uh, vaccinated with it. And within those countries, polio eventually became eradicated, as it was here in Canada and was mm-hmm. for the, uh, definitely in the United States. The problem was that there were two countries uh, left in the world that did not get the vaccinations, one of being Iraq and the other being Afghanistan. And they just didn't get the shots. And so while we don't know for sure where um, these symptoms came from uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the wastewater, um, we don't know where it came from, but, you know, if it didn't come from the majority of the world's nations that did have the vaccine, then it just gets reduced down to the final two. And um, we'll see what further studies uh, indicate on that. So um, one just has to press on and make sure you've got the shot. And for for understandable reasons, you know more about polio than the average person What do you think we are in for right now? Do you think that this is something we need to pay attention to because it's going to get worse, or we need to pay attention to it to prevent it from getting worse? I think at this this point we don't know whether the wastewater analysis in Canada is going to indicate whether or not the virus is there, yes or no. We just don't know yet. And I think a lot of this is going to be, be dependent on what the verdict is from the New York uh, wastewater situation. If it's found that there is a polio virus in the wastewater near New York City, then I, I think we'll see a tremendous incentive to uh, get all the major centers in this country and the United States tested to see whether the, the virus is there. David Onley, thank you so much for this. So just briefly mention, yes, yes. And, and not to be gross, but I mean, the reality is, the reason they're do that, doing that in the wastewater is that uh, polio is spread by fecal matter to an oral ingestion. And it's likely that the fecal matter was deposited in lakes or rivers, uh, and then people go swimming. Mm. And you're, you're not intending to take it in, but mm. uh, you do. And it only, you know, viruses spread very quickly. It only needs the smallest amount to um, impact on your body. So polio really can't be easily spread from person to person, but uh, it can be spread uh, very easily depending on where the fecal matter has been distributed. So the uh, the words of wisdom from uh, a man who knows, check your children's vaccination status. Indeed. All right, David Onley, thank you once again for this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Stay well. When we come back, cell phone technology and healthcare. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Illness, assessment, diagnosis, and treatment using technology. It's a new way of thinking that's focusing on improving access for patients while easing the pressure that's destroying our healthcare system. Novo Integrated Sciences is pioneering the delivery of non-catastrophic healthcare here in Canada through the integration of medical technology, innovative diagnostic and treatment solutions, and with a fresh approach to elder care, homeopathic medicine, physio, rehab, and virtual care. And your cell phone might come in handy as well, shifting some aspects of healthcare out of the hospital and into the doctor's office, even a patient's home. Here to explain is Robert Maticchioni, CEO of Novo Integrated Sciences, right here in York Region. Good to have you on the show, Robert. Well, it's actually my pleasure being here, and thank you for having me. So the headline says, embracing technology and innovation is key to easing the healthcare crisis. Can you explain that? Absolutely. I'd love to. Our approach at Novo Integrated is one that meshes traditional healthcare so that we're comfortable with what we're experiencing from a service perspective and introduces technology in a way that has been brought really to our attention through the COVID crisis and creates a, a bit of a layer of much more sophistication to that experience so that we can really decentralize the model that we exist and live in today. Uh, and of course, in our philosophy, we truly believe that products and wellness-based products, over-the-counter solutions are absolutely critical to easing the burden of healthcare on our, our institutions, our government, and our individual taxpayers so that we can maximize our experience from a healthcare perspective and, of course, never compromising the actual outcomes that we're looking to achieve. And that must be an issue if you're talking about over-the-counter and, and that sort of thing. It, it, it's in terms of self-diagnosis and maybe self-medicating. Is that a concern? Uh, it is and it isn't. I mean, we right now are extremely fortunate to have this Google thing that's in front of <laughs> us that allows us access to a ton of information. So it, it would be shame on us not to be uh, fully cognizant of our circumstances from a healthcare perspective. So it, the obligation of knowledge is, is on us. We look to our professionals, our healthcare professionals, to assist us down that pathway. But in the same way that we integrate and really navigate social platforms for entertainment, we should really do the same thing for healthcare. Uh, and so I, I'm not overly concerned with that just because of the amount of information that's out there. Really, the, the, the biggest concern is on the accuracy of the information. There is so much out there, and we have to really try to wade through all the, the garbage, so to speak, or the stuff that sits at the top that is irrelevant to the experience. And from our perspective, it's important that we authenticate the information that our patients are really exposed to. So explain to us the technology that you are speaking of. Absolutely. Um, so we, we believe that decentralization is, is the key to success, and both from a treatment and an access perspective and a cost perspective. So what we try to introduce is telehealth at a very robust level. It's peripheral-based. You can access it through your home by way of your devices of communication. And moreover, you can also experience that interaction with a, a, a practitioner or a doctor in our clinics. Because we also recognize that the experience that we're traditionally accustomed to is one that does involve a face-to-face -face relationship with our healthcare providers. And that's really the magic, that the peripherals themselves allow a doctor to interact almost in the same manner as if you were physically there. 
Bluetooth stethoscopes, otoscopes, dermoscopes, just a wide array of tools that really can be applied and assisted through use by, let's call them lower level practitioners or, or on the totem pole of healthcare providers, someone at the, at the bottom level so that we can then utilize our utmost of professionals in the most efficient way possible. So are you talking about home computers? Are you talking about smartphones as well in terms of the technological tools at our fingertips? Yeah, we're talking about smartphones. We're talking about computers. We're talking about these these tools that we use every day and now take for granted that are really elevating the game of, of healthcare. You know, some of these have scanning capabilities that are at another level so that we can run diagnostic uh, protocols around their their use. Uh, in our clinics, as an example, our peripherals are real-time in that the information that's gathered is transmitted to an off-site doctor, and that doctor can be hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles away, because really that's the ultimate solution, being able to break down this issue of reciprocity so that we can use doctors from every corner of the globe. How do you deal with one-on-one physical uh, testing, like blood tests and saliva tests? And that's the, the beauty of having our, let's call them technicians, those that are accredited through our, our platforms, to be able to administer those tools and, and use those diagnostic tools with oversight. This is not something that, you know, we're not 23andMe or Ancestry.com where we want to leave that entire experience in your hands. We want, we want to guide you through it. And those diagnostic tools that we can bring into your home by way of PSW or nurses and nurse practitioners really allow us to expand our what we call our network. So non-catastrophic, maybe we need to understand what that means. Absolutely. It, you know, 80% of our costs and 80% of our healthcare experience is based in non-catastrophic care whether it's dealing with a fever, a cold, a virus, um, some kind of pain-related uh, issue or, or, or disease, but nothing that really would require, let's say, a specialist or a surgical professional or a hospital environment. Our hospitals are places of wonder, but they are also places of extensive cost. Everything that's done in that forum is at a, at a level that, unfortunately equates to big dollars being spent. So we want to be able to find a way to isolate that. And really what we're able to do on the non-catastrophic side, that ailment or that disease that we can treat as an everyday circumstance is do it in in a very comfortable, a very accessible form so that we can bring down costs, make the experience very, very comfortable. Waiting times are eliminated effectively so that your experience is one of a consumer as opposed to just one of a patient. You know, we take great, great lengths, and we go to great lengths rather, to have a, a fantastic experience everywhere we go, whether it's shopping or eating, dining, and we need to extend that to healthcare. And that's what we're able to do in the form of, of our model. Always keeping in mind that preventative care is the ultimate solution to the most practical and efficient form of healthcare. So, Robert, does it boil down to this? The onus is then on the patient to determine what is non-catastrophic or catastrophic and whether virtual care is the next step or actually going to a hospital, to an emergency room. Yeah, and I mean, to, to a degree, there's, uh, you know, that self 
diagnosis uh, capability. Um, but really, as soon as you engage in our platform, we're able to filter through and, and determine if, if you're experiencing a catastrophic consequence. Um, and so that's helpful in that regard. But as I said, the majority of reasons why we attend a doctor to begin with are non-catastrophic. And you're just not feeling well, whether it's a fever or, or some other ailment. It's something that is not obviously creating this massive concern, but is creating a need to react. And, and that's, that's what we refer to as catastrophic care, or non-catastrophic care, rather. Um, and so we want to make that care most accessible. And, and in doing so, we bring down costs dramatically. We help our system to survive because our system was built out of necessity. You know, if we go back to the olden days when there was horse and wagon, doctors came to your home and it worked fantastic. And then population booms and, and a whole bunch of other issues created the need for centralization. Um, and that served wonderfully for the better part of five decades. But, you know, we're in a time now where we have to embrace technology and healthcare always does so, but does so from the practitioner's point of view. Uh, we are now dealing with a different time where we can centralize that healthcare into the patient's hands mm. by decentralizing the entire model. That makes sense. So let me ask you this. How does Nova Integrated Sciences then deliver this state-of-the-art healthcare? And how, do, how does one access it? Well, we have a very robust network of clinics um, that are associated to our standard of care, uh, and we're extremely proud of that, that network that's coast to coast. We have uh, a, an extensive array of doctors on board with respect to being available from a remote point of view. Uh, just simply going to our Novo HealthNet site and seeing where we are allows you access. We have something called Novo Connect, which is our proprietary app, which gives you access to all these tools. And then we have our products. Our products, you know, one product in particular, as we go back to school, uh, our kids go back to school, something that we're extremely, extremely proud of because it really is a daily use micronutrient that is in the same spirit and vein as vitamin C. You've got to take it. It's an antioxidant. It's fantastic. It helps us in dealing with the issues that have been brought to light in the last several year, years. Um, and assist us in going forward with respect to just general health. And that's something we call Ionova. It's an iodine-based product that is uh, phenomenal, phenomenal for kids, for adults, just for everyone. Novo Integrated Sciences, Robert Matticchioni, CEO, thanks a lot for your time, your insights, and your energy on the feed. Thank you so much, Ed. It was my pleasure. Coming up next, music and laughter. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. He has opened for Russell Peters, and now this Markham comedian is taking center stage. Jim Lang laughs it up with Nima Naz. One of the bright young comics, not just in Canada, but in North America, lives in Markham. He's lived in Markham since he's 12 years old, and he is a phenomenon on social media. And he's Nima Naz, and he joins me right now. Nima, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on here. It's a, it. it's a pleasure. I, I love comedians. I love Dave Chappelle and Bill Burr and Russell Peters. 
because I think more than ever in the last couple of years, but we need to laugh. And I stumbled across your social media where you now have 170,000 plus on Instagram, over half a million on TikTok with your videos of different people in Canada and different cultures. And they are absolutely hysterical. I know I've needed it. I've heard from a lot of people. They've needed it as well. What, what kind of feedback do you get from the content you provide and create on a regular basis? Um, the main thing is that I, first of all, love being my authentic self online. And I feel like that kind of translates outside of the camera and people, that's why I really, that's why a lot of people really like to support me. And, um, they feel like they, they, ha they actually get a really positive impact from my content and my material. And they, they have a chance to really connect with me on a deeper level than most. Uh, you're, and, yeah. you're a proud Persian Canadian. How has your family and your fellow Persian Canadians responded to you and your success and what you do? I mean, they love it. Uh, there's not many people that are like me in this, in my culture who do, who, who are doing what I'm doing. So, um, I think they're definitely very supportive and, and excited to know that there is someone like me to represent them. I, everyone has a starting point. You hear stories about so-and-so was a class clown and Bill Burr was in summer school because he kept getting kicked out. When was the tipping point for Nima Nas when you thought, you know, I'm making people laugh. I'm kind of a funny guy. I think I've always known that I was I was a funny guy, even as a kid. You know, my whenever there were family parties, my parents would always make me get up in front of their friends and <laughs> try to make them laugh and make fun of my mom and all that stuff. <laughs> um, but then, you know, throughout yeah, and throughout high school and you know elementary school, all my friends, I was always like the the joker of the group. And then that's it. Like pretty much when I got into my early twenties, everyone kept telling me, "Oh my god, you're so funny! You're so funny! You're so funny!" And that's when I kind of realized. But I, I know you were in university. How far did you go before you dropped out and become a full-time comedian? It was just one year. It was one year, thankfully. Yeah, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a, I didn't get a degree or nothing. I just quickly dropped out. Uh, speaking to Markham's Nima Nas, who is one of the bright young comics in North America right now, as far as I'm concerned, the comparisons of Russell Peters are very appropriate. Um, when you started out, how long till you found your voice, the what the Nima Nas that we see now that makes us cry laugh every day when we watch your videos? It took a while. I mean, because I do stand-up comedy as well, it's uh it's a it's always an ongoing process of getting better and you know, learning through your mistakes. And it took about four or five years before I actually found my 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 true voice on stage. Uh, and online and it's still growing it's still i still feel like i'm fairly new in a way maybe the favorite video i've ever seen because i'm a, i'm a middle-aged white guy dad with two girls in university and it was the the white dad finding his kids with drugs and the um uh ethnic dad finding his kids with drugs and the, the drugs and the different response i mean i i showed my wife and we were falling off her chair how did you come up with that idea Oh, it's very, very simple. I mean, it's just th these observations come to me very, very quickly and very easily in my opinion. It's just how, it's how my brain works. I just, <laughs> I just see things and I, I regurgitate it, you know, in my own way. And that's it. It's, just, it's the life I've lived. I've, I've been around so many different types of people my whole life. And because I'm so observant, I just immediately go for the, okay, well, how can I impersonate this person, this person, this person? And I, I just do it. I know, Nima, you're originally from Scarborough. You lived in Markham since you were 12. Uh, Markham is such a diverse cultural community with so many different people, a different background. How much did that help being exposed to different cultures and different religions and different kinds of people through your life in the GTA to create who you are right now? 
Um, I just, I feel like I'm an extension of the people around me. And like I mentioned earlier, I, I grew up around a lot of different cultures of people. And mm-hmm. I feel like I just, I'm lucky growing up in Scarborough and Markham for that reason, because it's so diverse. There's, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, Asians and, and Indians and black people, white people, Persians, uh, Arabs, Greeks, Italian, you know what I mean? The list goes on. And I feel like that's why I, I have all this, you know, catalog of different accents and impersonations and jokes. When did you get a sense that your social media was blowing up as it is right now with so many followers and so many different platforms? It was after about four or five years, actually, because I was I started off on when I dropped out of university, I, I started my YouTube channel. And for the first four years, it was absolutely garbage. Like just <laughs> nothing was flowing. Nothing was going. I, I was it was my time to learn and and push through like the types of material and content that I want to try that I when I didn't know my voice yet. And then when I finally found my voice, I feel like that's when it finally started to hit. Uh, and I started to post micro content on Instagram and TikTok. And that's when it really started to, you know, start flowing. And one after the other, every video just started to kind of, it was like a trickle effect. It kept on getting better and better. Now, I find everything hysterical. But I, you know what it's like in 2022, Neba. Sometimes people get offended by the lowest thing. You, you do right. voices and characters of different cultures and different people in this country, North America. How do you, do you have some people basically say, hey, I, I was offended by that and things of that nature? Oh, yeah, all the time. Uh, I've, I've gotten called racist, homophobic this and that but i'm like you know when people say things like that it's one the main thing is that they don't have full context on my life and who i am as a person so the first thing they see they think oh this is just some white guy doing this accent but i'm like you don't even know who i am like my whole thing is is literally making fun of everybody and i'm not even like trying to put anyone down i'm actually trying to represent for different communities and cultures of people that i grew up around like i mentioned earlier and because that's just like I, I'm friends with all these people, you know what I'm saying? So I feel like I'm the voice of the generation of all these cultures. And so when I get comments like that, I realize, oh, okay, like they just don't know. They have no context and they could be also envious and, you know, just being a hater. Like it's all simple as that. And I, and I look at the videos and your depictions of different cultures in every culture, especially we find Nima in, you know, Markham, York region, the GTA, there's a built in humor to people and, and families of different backgrounds. And you sort of, to me, you highlight it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and like I mentioned before, you know, I, because I grew up around different types of people, I've also been around in different communities and I'm always open to, you know, meeting new people and going into different areas and learning new things. And just, just by trade, I mean, naturally I've, I've just stumbled upon all these different accents and people. And that's how, that's how it comes to me. Now I love David, Goggins, because I've I've yeah, I've yeah. seen some videos and the stories, but David Joggins weather report. I right. my wife said, "Are you okay?" Because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come up with the idea for David Joggins? <laughs> uh, well, I I do a a weekly YouTube show that's a parody news show. It's yeah, the news network, and um, because I didn't want to like kind of use everyone's anyone's actual real name, right? I, you know, just in case, I just made it a parody name, but everyone still knows who it is, obviously. And uh, he actually reposted that actual the say that that actual video of David Joggins' weather report on his own page. Oh, a couple of weeks ago, um, which was amazing, and I was losing it because the guy himself <laughs> reposted it. And yeah, not, just um, I, like I said, like I just there's certain personalities that I that I watch online, and then 
I naturally can either imitate them right away or I'm so interested in what they have to say and that I, I actually take a lot from what they offer that I go out of my way to learn how to impersonate them and you know, do videos on them. I'm sure a lot of people in the region think maybe a Frank Scarpitti or a Maurizio Bevilacqua imitation will be next. But uh, I think, personally, I think you should have your own show. You're that talented, and you've done some TV. For people who are going to start to discover you in social media, is that kind of avenue coming up next in your career, Nima? Yeah, I mean, my goal is to eventually branch out and do my own movies and obviously tour the world doing stand-up comedy. That's my main goal in life. And I, that, that's what truly brings me the most happiness is being on stage more than anything. But I also want to make big movies like Borat style where I have, you know, I have, cause I have so many characters that I yeah. really, you know, go really deep on and I want to do that kind of movie for my own characters. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely the, the main goal in the next coming years. <laughs> the hockey players talking about last night's party uh, the stories and the topics go on and on. And I, and Nima, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. Uh, I know Shaliza Bacchus does in the midday show. She's from Markham. We're like, have you seen this Nima Nas? We talk about you all the time. So it's great to chat with you. And we're big supporters and wish you nothing but the best of success. And for people, follow him on Instagram and TikTok. If you need a laugh and want to be able to laugh at yourself and laugh at life, this is the guy for you. Nima, you keep it up because as far as I'm concerned, Russell Peters, Bill Burr, move over. Here comes Nima Nas. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the the chat and um, all the best to you guys as well. Thank you. This next performer is all about the music. Shaliza Bacchus takes us to the CNE band shell. The summer may be winding down, but that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy some music. And especially with the return of the Canadian National Exhibition this year, we are going to hear from some amazing artists. And Jay Douglas is one of those artists. Now, he's been in the business for 45 years. He started his musical journey in Montego Bay, Jamaica. And flash forward, here we are. And Jay, you've really got a story to tell. Thank you for asking. Uh I must say I was conceived in music. <laughs> I'm blessed. <laughs> because as a kid, there was just something about me and music. Hearing it on the radio anywhere, my grandparents, when they babysit me, they would tell me how I would react or respond to hearing music. What we have here now is Canadian art, American Idol. I went through that in Montego Bay. In those days, it was called Pick a Star. We just went through so many different competition and went on from Montego Bay to Kingston and from Kingston to Toronto. Becoming a I was a student at Central Tech, the largest technical school in the Commonwealth. That's where I got to meet a lot of friends and musicians and went on to become a lead singer of the Cougars, which was one of the early bands in Toronto. And I became the lead singer of the Cougars. I was asked to audition and I became the lead singer. And I never looked back. Well, good for you. It's been quite the journey. And you've also, you know, tackled so many different genres from R&B to soul to reggae. Do you have a favorite genre, dare I ask? They're all connected because we would not have had reggae unless we had the blues. The blues gave us rock and roll, a certain form of jazz and pop. And today we have hip-hop. We are connected into the universe and the, the music. It's our energy and forces. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that's that's been a common theme, you know, being in the business for 45 years. You know, you've been through a lot. I'm not trying to age you, though. I'm not trying to age you. I'm just I'm just saying, you know, you've been in the business for 45 years and I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes and a lot of things going on in the music industry. And what changes have you seen over the years and, and have some of them been hard to embrace? Well, we've had lots of changes because nothing stays the same. Nothing. Nothing stays the same. We must accept changes in a very positive way. To stay the same, we would become stagnant. But a lot of these young talents are very, very talented. Very talented. And they take the music to another level. And that's okay with me. It's just that one thing. We must respect the foundation of the music. Where is it coming from? The older artists. Elvis, the blues guys, B.B. King, great artists like Roscoe Gordon, the foundation. And we learn, we take the past, we don't hang on to it, we learn from it and make the future better. So some things I may not agree with, I like, but I have to be careful how I assess it and look at it. Yeah, so many important changes. And and I love that you're embracing that. I'm glad that after all this time, you're still able to embrace all those changes. And after all this time, you're still making music as well. You have a new single called I'm in Love With You. Tell me about that and tell me how this single compares to music you've made in the past. I wrote this single, I'm in Love With You. And it's a blues. As you know, the the blues can be very sad a lot of times. And we can change it with, lyrics being a little more positive to be able to tell someone that I'm in love with you I love you that's very powerful because the power of love means a lot so it was a pleasure writing that song and looking through the eyes of someone who's in love with someone but can't get that acknowledgement of love and it's just so many parts to this journey of life (laughs) Definitely. And, and that that's definitely what inspires you making a lot of your music. And, you know, you've been recognized in so many ways, in so many places, you know, just to name a few. Now Magazine, ter- the Toronto Reggae Awards, the Juno Awards, just to name a few. So can you maybe say what your biggest accomplishment has been, in your opinion? Would you believe my eyes achievement was... When I came as a young boy, my mom came as a domestic worker from Jamaica in the 50s. And as I came here in the 60s, one of the first things she taught me, son, knowledge is power when it's used effectively. You're going to need education. And that meant so much to me, meeting people of different culture and learning to accept their culture and appreciate them for who they are. And that's one of my biggest achievements. It makes me a good citizen of the world. And another accomplishment that I had was to be an opening act for Sissy Houston, that's Whitney Houston's mother. I opened for her up in Montreal and she shared a lot of good stuff with me that helped me along the way till this day. I don't even know what to say. I feel like I'm at a loss for words because your your definition of accomplishment, it goes beyond even your career. It just comes down to being a good person and that's what we need being to hear person. right now. Yes, being a good person. 
if I'm not part of the solution, I'm part of the problem. So I better leave it at that. <laughs> and that's a good that's a good place to leave it. Now, Jay, you're going to be performing at the CNE as part of their Bandshell performances on August 24th. I'm sure you're a pro now. You're no stranger to the stage. But what are you bringing to that performance and what are you most excited about? Well, I'm, I'm very blessed that my band and myself were going to be opening for this great international reggae at the Third World. Good, a good weather, good weather for that day, and it's so nice to be doing this in this great, beautiful city of Toronto. You know, and God bless this great country of Canada too. You know, so I'm really looking forward to that. That is so exciting. So once again, Jay Douglas performing at the CNE Band Shell on August 24th. Now, Jay, if our listeners want to hear some more of your music or want to find you online, where can they do that? Well, uh, it's on Bandcamp. You know, and um, iTunes and all those social media outlets. And if they were to come to the CNE, they can get a copy of the new album, Confession. Hopefully we'll have it on the vinyl down the road, which we're looking into right now. Amazing. Love to hear that. Jay Douglas, thank you so much for joining me. Looking forward to your performance and to listening to some of your music. Thank you so much for having me and God bless you. I'm leaving town Said I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving Leaving for the other side of Dodge It's no use, pretty baby I'm losing you And so I said
If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.